Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Where are we in this book? Well, how did we get here? Thanks to the persecution of the Roman Empire, the Apostle John lives in exile on the island of Patmos, some 40 miles off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. Cut off from his family and friends, from all those he cared for and served as their pastor, John receives a much-needed visit, a revelation from the risen, living, glorified, and reigning Christ. Jesus appears to John and pulls back the curtain of linear time, unveiling the eternal implications of the gospel, of the everlasting work of the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. But before this spectacular vision really gets going, Jesus delivers seven letters to seven churches. Seven letters to seven churches, active local churches known to John in the first century in Asia Minor. And these letters, along with the grand unveiling Jesus provides afterwards, what makes up the book of Revelation, they're not just for the churches in John's day. They're for the church in every generation. And last week, through the first letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus, we learned what should be the most prominent visible birthmark of the body of Christ. The most prominent visible birthmark of the body of Christ should be love. Specifically, loving others like Jesus loves us. And today, as we turn our attention to the second letter that Jesus authors to the community of faith in a place called Smyrna, we will discover loving others like Jesus loves us can come at a cost. It does not happen without sacrifice. Together, we will see the second mark of the body of Christ is to suffer for the sake of love. To suffer for the sake of love, just like Jesus did for us. And I invite us to hear those words from Revelation chapter 2. Read along in your Bible or as the words are up on the screen. Jesus writes, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This brief but powerful message Jesus delivers is to a community of faith located in the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was a city in the ancient world with an interesting history, specifically a history of coming back from the dead. Smyrna originally was built around 1000 BC, and some 400 years later, in 600 BC, Smyrna was destroyed by a rival kingdom. 
And then centuries later in 290 BC, the city of Smyrna was rebuilt during the reign of Alexander the Great, becoming one of the main cities in Asia Minor. And because of this, a famous ancient Greek orator equated, later equated Smyrna with the phoenix, the mythological bird that even though it dies, has the ability to rise up from the ashes. Smyrna is the Greek word for myrrh, that fragrant incense or perfume used for anointing, purification, and particularly in burial. And the city of Smyrna definitely bore the sweet smell of success, the aroma of money and power. 35 miles north of Ephesus, on the west shore of the Aegean Sea, Smyrna was commercially successful because of its vast harbor, as well as for being at the end of a major trade route that went through Asia Minor. Not just economically prosperous, but also culturally sophisticated, Smyrna prided itself on being first among all the other ancient cities. They even stamped it on their local coinage. First in Asia in beauty and size. And Smyrna managed to live up to its own self-declared reputation. You see, in 26 AD, after an empire-wide competition to build a temple to the famed emperor Tiberius, the Roman Senate granted this esteemed privilege to Smyrna alone. Out of 11 other cities, Smyrna won the coveted honor of becoming the temple warden of the imperial cult, the center for emperor worship. For the citizens of Smyrna, the Roman confession, Caesar is Lord, was more than just a slogan. It was a declaration of patriotism and loyalty. Now, as far as the Christian community in Smyrna goes, there's no record of its planting anywhere in the Bible. Tradition holds the Apostle Paul, during his third missionary journey, visited this city on his way to Ephesus. But that's about all we know biblically about Smyrna, beyond what's in this letter. Again, much of what we do know about the church in Smyrna comes from what Jesus describes of their situation here. And from what Jesus briefly outlines, this much is clear. The Christian community in Smyrna is a suffering church. A suffering church. Their hardships, as Jesus outlines them, are threefold. First, Jesus speaks of the afflictions of the church at Smyrna. He talks of their afflictions. I know of your afflictions. The original Greek word used here is philipsis. And this word philipsis means crushing pressure. This word philipsis is actually a strong technical term used more often in reference to grapes or sheaves of wheat being pressed together, squeezed, and eventually crushed beneath a weight. Philipsis, sometimes translated into English as tribulation, conveys the difficulties that the Christians in Smyrna were facing were not minor inconveniences. They were not the typical frustrations of living in a broken world. No, like grinding wheat or crushing grapes, the church in Smyrna was under immense pressure, encountering not just resistance, but being hard-pressed, facing great suffering in their choice to daily live for Christ and his kingdom. And one manifestation of the squeeze being put on the Christians in Smyrna was their socioeconomic status, as Jesus acknowledges not only their afflictions, but also their poverty. Smyrna may have been a rich, prosperous city, but clearly the Christians in Smyrna were not sharing in its wealth. Because in a city that prided itself on its patriotism, 
its unwavering allegiance to whatever made the empire great, including cultishly worshiping the emperor of Rome, any citizens in Smyrna who weren't willing to bow accordingly to declare not Jesus, but Caesar as Lord. Well, they paid the price for their disloyalty. They were blacklisted in the marketplace. No one loyal to Rome would buy from them. No one loyal to Rome would sell to them. No one loyal to Rome would help them. Because of their faith in Christ, the Christians in Smyrna were struggling to put food on their tables, a roof over their heads. They were struggling to secure the basic necessities of life. Facing tremendous pressure while also struggling to make ends meet, Smyrna was also suffering as a victim of slander. Slander. Slander is the act of harming another person's reputation by telling one or more people something that is untrue and damaging about that person or that community. And the slander being directed at the church in Smyrna, we don't know the content of it, but we know the slander being directed at the church in Smyrna was being spearheaded by the Jews living in that city. Now, back then, back in the time when Jesus is giving this revelation to John, something we need to understand is back then all Jews were exempt by Roman law. They were exempt by Roman law from having to participate in any pagan rituals and sacrifices, including the worship of the emperor just as long as they still paid their taxes to the empire. And in the beginning, the Roman Empire did not perceive Christianity as a separate faith, but instead saw all followers of Jesus as just being another strand of Judaism. So consequently, at first, Christians fell under the same religious exemption the Jews in in Rome had, and thus were afforded the same protections. But unlike their Jewish neighbors, the Christians weren't just not participating in the Roman rituals and sacrifices. They weren't just not participating. They were evangelizing others. Rather than quietly minding their own business, Christians, in sharing the gospel, were actively attempting to lead others not to follow Caesar as Lord, but to follow Jesus instead. Understandably, this upset the powers that be throughout the Roman Empire, and it also threatened the religious exemption for the Jews. So rather than continuing to risk guilt by association, the Jews in Smyrna aggressively sought to separate themselves from their Christian neighbors. They not only denied affiliation with followers of Jesus, but actively sought to persecute those who were part of the church in Smyrna as a further measure to disassociate themselves from the disloyalty being associated with Christianity. Now, if you were paying attention, Jesus speaks harshly against those slandering the Christians in Smyrna. Talks about them being a synagogue of Satan. That's heavy. But when Jesus talks about being a synagogue of Satan, he isn't so much being pejorative of Judaism and all Jews. You'll notice that in the same breath, Jesus also says, anyone who acts the way that they are, are not Jews at all. No, what's really going on here is Jesus is clarifying the real force behind the oppression the church in Smyrna is facing. As Jesus goes on, you heard to specifically reference the devil, he's indicating the source of oppression against the church. That source of oppression is spiritual attack. 
It's diabolical, demonic forces opposed to God. The Apostle Paul, by the way, made the same clarification once long ago in his letter to the Ephesians when he wrote, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in their heavenly realms. And truth be told, the real target of this spiritual attack, any spiritual attack followers of Jesus may encounter, the real target is actually Jesus himself. But as the awesome picture of the whole book of Revelation makes clear, the forces of sin, evil, and death are fighting a losing battle. Having already be, been overcome by the work of the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost, those forces cannot touch Christ. So instead, they are hell-bent on trying to mar or destroy all that is good and true, including those who seek to follow Jesus. So that's all the background. And, and as we take this in, this very brief but powerful letter, you know, and this idea of what's happening, of suffering, something I just want to point out is that normally we associate suffering with something being done wrong. I mean, most of us recognize suffering as a part of the reality of living in a broken world, a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. Whether we admit it or not, we realize when everyone does their own thing, when everyone does what is right and good for them, somebody else inevitably suffers. Somebody else inevitably suffers. We actually suffer. Creation suffers when we all just do whatever we think is good and right and true. Because here's the thing, we rarely if ever, all agree on what is good, right, and true. What's good, right, and true for little old me, even a gathering of us, is likely to be bad, wrong, and false for someone else. Another group of people. Flawed, imperfect people living in a broken world hurt each other, not to mention hurt themselves, not to mention hurt the world of which they are a part. But this is not the kind of suffering the church in Smyrna is experiencing. They're not experiencing suffering from doing something wrong. I know we're still early in this sermon series, but I wonder if we notice something about this letter to the church in Smyrna. Last week I mentioned how each of these seven letters Jesus writes, they follow a similar pattern. First, Jesus affirms something about each church. Then Jesus identifies a point of correction for each church. And finally, Jesus prescribes a remedy for each church that is expressed with both a warning and a promise. That's the flow. You'll see it continue next week and thereafter. But here, in the letter to the church at Smyrna, Jesus breaks this pattern. Did you catch it? No point of correction is identified for the church in Smyrna. No point of correction, like last week, Ephesus, but this I hold against you. Not here. There is no point of correction identified for the church in Smyrna. Jesus merely addresses the tension they are facing, immense pressure, poverty, and persecution born of slander. Jesus has not one word of critique for them. Consider the significance of that. The church in Smyrna is not suffering because of something they've done wrong. No, what Jesus is implying here is the Christians in Smyrna are suffering because they are doing everything right. Everything right. All of us, believer and non-believer alike, suffer. We all suffer because we live in a broken world 
as broken people in a broken world, a world that's being transformed, but a world that's still yet still broken. But for those who profess faith in Christ, there is an additional different kind of suffering. The tribulation that comes from actually following Jesus. The closer we are to Christ, the more we are like Jesus, the more we live like Jesus, as we talk and walk and engage others and interact with the world like Christ, the more our lives will look like Jesus' life on this earth. And what happened when God came down in the person of Christ? Persecution, slander, abuse, false arrest, being put to death. In other words, Suffering is inevitable when we truly follow Jesus. Long before the emergence of the church in Smyrna, from Jerusalem to Galatia, from Philippi to Thessalonica, the first followers of Jesus repeatedly encountered hardships all because of their devotion, not just to the person, but to the way of Christ. Jesus explicitly told us, you remember? Jesus explicitly told us if we followed him, if we crossed boundary lines and tore down walls of separation, if we lowered ourselves to serve others, particularly those in need, if we indiscriminately broke bread with the wrong kinds of people, if we committed ourselves to make peace rather than indulging in violence, if we loved others as he loved us, if we forgave others as he forgives us, Jesus explicitly told us that if we followed him, we would be treated as he was. We would suffer. In fact, the more we embody the character of Christ in our engagement with this world, the more we do what Jesus would do. We love to ask that question. We love that bracelet, right? What would Jesus do? But when we actually live the answer, the more we do what Jesus would do in our interactions with others, the more the likelihood of our suffering increases rather than decreases. Hence, you'll notice, and it might disturb us at first, Jesus, as he continues to address the church in Smyrna, tells them it's going to get worse before it gets better. Jesus prepares them to expect that all that pressure they're experiencing, all that slander they are facing, is going to turn into an eventual campaign of persecution, one that will lead some to be imprisoned, one that will lead others to even lose their very lives. Now, I don't know where you're sitting today, but I have to imagine this was a hard word for the Christians in Smyrna to hear. And I think it's a difficult word for us to continue to hear as well. This idea that if we truly follow Jesus, we will inevitably suffer. That in fact, the closer we are to Jesus, the more we live like Jesus, our suffering doesn't decrease, it increases. That's not going to pack a church. But what's so important is Jesus does not deliver this news without some encouragement, as well as with a promise. Jesus says to the church, and it gets me every time I read it out loud, Jesus says, I know, I know, I know 
of your afflictions. I, I know of your poverty. I know of the slander being spoken against you. I know, Jesus says. Jesus emphasizes his solidarity with all who suffer in his name. And it bears remembering that the image that we're given of Jesus in this vision that he gives to John is that he is not above or apart, but walking among the churches. He is present with and for us. Jesus reminds us here and elsewhere that as a man of sorrows, as the crucified Lamb of God, who in taking away the sins of the world, in conquering evil and defeating death, knows all that we're going through. Jesus has been there. And Jesus continues to be with us in our suffering. He's not removed from all we're going through. No, Jesus, as he promised, that part of the Great Commission that we often forget, because we like the first part, Jesus promised that he is with us until the end of the age. I know, Jesus says, this word of solidarity that Jesus gives, and, and it's powerful. And it's all well and good. But if we're honest, if that's all Jesus had to say, it would not be enough. If all Jesus had to say was, I know, I've been there, I get that. If all Jesus had to say is, it hurts me more than it hurts you. That's all Jesus had to say. It would not be enough. Don't get me wrong. Solidarity and suffering. That someone can relate to what we're going through. That someone is with us when we hurt. That matters. It means something. But it is not enough. It is comforting. But it doesn't resolve or change anything. If solidarity was all that Jesus had to give, then his further encouragement in this letter, don't be afraid. Be faithful. Have faith rather than give in to fear. If Jesus, all Jesus had to give was his solidarity with us, then those words, don't be afraid and be faithful, would amount to a little more than a divine pep talk. Your garden variety, positive thinking. But Jesus doesn't tell us not to fear. Jesus doesn't spur us to keep the faith without saying something else first, something we missed. Notice, Jesus begins this letter by reassuring the Christians in Smyrna that he is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. My friends, Jesus is being very intentional in his self-description here. In fact, something we're going to notice in each of these seven letters is Jesus identifies himself with an image appropriate to that particular city. So what exactly is Jesus communicating in this case? Well, here we go. Do we remember... Were you paying attention when I told you the city of Smyrna prided herself on being the first in Asia? Number one, had it on their coinage, remember? It's not a coincidence then that Jesus, when he comes right out of the gate to the church in Smyrna, declares, I am the first and the last. Do you remember how I told you that Smyrna fancied themselves being Phoenix-like? That city that rose from the dead? not by accident that Christ goes on to unequivocally state, I am the one who died. I am the one who died and came to life again. Do you see it? To a church under pressure and the growing threat of a city aligned against it, a city boasting of its superiority and invulnerability, 
Jesus offers more than just solidarity. Jesus offers himself as the answer to their suffering. Jesus offers nothing less than the gospel. The city of Smyrna may have been brought back from the dead for a time by the power of man, but Jesus came out of the tomb by the power of God, conquering the grave for all time, never to die again. Jesus, as the one who lives forever, is the one who brings life out of death. Smyrna may be first among the cities of Asia, but Christ is the first and the last, standing above all, ruling over all creation, from the womb to the grave and the possibility beyond. Therefore, our lives are not bracketed by the rise and fall of Smyrna. Our lives are not bracketed by the rise and fall of Rome. Our lives are not bracketed by the rise and fall of the United States. Our lives are not bracketed by the rise and fall of any leader or movement. The boundaries of our lives, our identity, who we are and who we can be, the boundaries of our lives, our destiny from whence we have come and where we are going, the boundaries of our lives are in Christ's hands alone. Jesus doesn't just know how it feels, how broken, how bad, how hard life can be. Jesus knows, but that's not it. Christ endured. Jesus absorbed how hard and bad it all is, all the pain and hurt of creation, all that ever has been, all that is, all that ever will be. Jesus absorbed all that pain and suffering and took it upon himself on the cross in order to overcome it. My friends, it is because of who Jesus is, what Christ has done, what Christ continues to do, that the words, don't be afraid, that the words, be faithful, become more than a platitude. They become an everlasting promise. It is because of who Jesus is, what Christ has done, what Christ continues to do, that he can transform what is intended for our destruction and make it constructive, life-giving rather than life-taking. Notice in verse 10 how Jesus frames what the Christians in Smyrna are about to face as a test. A test. Now let's be clear. The enemy's purpose in applying pressure, in turning up the heat of persecution, the enemy's purpose in threatening us with death is not to test us. It is to destroy us. The forces opposed to God seek to convince us through all the persecution and suffering we face that what awaits us is nothing more than loss. That all that we have is death. But Jesus reorients our understanding of what is happening as we suffer with and for him. What looks designed for our annihilation, Jesus assures us in this letter is nothing more than a trial period as he at first glance cryptically states the persecution will be suffered for 10 days. My friends, Jesus is not being literal here. Jesus, when he says the persecution you will suffer will be for 10 days, Jesus is employing a common Greek expression that basically meant a couple of days, a brief time. The point is, is Jesus is declaring he is in control. Jesus is saying the pressure we face has its limits. And again, what appears orchestrated for our destruction, Jesus repurposes as a test. 
a means of our refinement and growth. Not for our loss, but for our gain. Not to weaken us, but to make us stronger. To strengthen our faith. To strengthen our faith. Remember, our faithfulness. We talk about being faithful. Our faithfulness comes not from our faith in ourselves. It doesn't even come from our capacity and will to believe, our strength to follow Jesus. Our faithfulness comes from the faith, the faith, faith in who Jesus is, what Christ has done, the power and direction that Jesus gives us through the word and the spirit to follow him every step of the way. Faith is a gift that Jesus gives to us. And so the test of our suffering for Christ is not a test we have to pass in our wisdom and strength. It's a test through which we are empowered and enabled by the grace of God to come through the other side. And we're listening because Jesus promises that what's awaits, what awaits us on the other side is life. Life, not death. He equates, in fact, this gift of life with being given the crown of victory as in one of those athletic competitions in, of the Roman world. But again, this particular image has added meaning for the Christians in Smyrna because you see, if we were to go there in the center of this beautiful and impressive city in which they lived, sitting like a crown in the middle was Mount Pagus. Alluding to that image, to that picture, Jesus assures the church in Smyrna their ultimate victory is certain and it will be greater than the majesty and splendor of the place they now call home the full magnitude of this victory, of this life Jesus gives is further revealed as Christ ends this letter by promising those who hear, those who are victorious will not be hurt at all by what he calls the second death. Now, again, at first this statement might be confusing to us. Second death? Every single one of us dies. Every single one of us dies because death is now a part of life in a broken world. But thanks to Jesus, for those who follow Christ, that death becomes a doorway into new and everlasting life. But apart from Christ, we die not only in terms of the expiration of our lives in this world, but apart from Christ, we die again in the sense that after death, after that death, we no longer exist. Because apart from the presence of God, without the grace of God, there is no life. There is only non-existence. So in essence, what Jesus is promising here is that those who follow and live for him may suffer death in the body, just as he did, but they will not suffer death in their soul. They will instead live beyond death just as he did. They will be resurrected with Jesus and nothing will ever separate them from the love of Christ. The great preacher E.V. Hill once put it this way. I absolutely adore this. The great preacher E.V. Hill once put it this way. Those who are born once die twice. But those who are born twice die once. Dang, that's good. Wish I came up with that. I don't know about you, but I only want to die once. I don't know about you, but I only want to die once. But here's the thing. Beloved, is ours a faith worth dying for? 
Is ours a faith worth dying for? If we found ourselves facing what the church in Smyrna was dealing with, the mounting pressure to conform, the poverty that results from choosing not to sell out, the increasing slander that comes from living for Christ, the possibility of prison, and maybe even the loss of our lives, would we still follow Jesus? Are we convinced, like the Apostle Paul once wrote to the church in Philippi, that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Is ours a faith worth dying for? This is a challenging letter. To, to, it's a, just a totally different context for us, the church in the West, than it was the, for the church that first heard this. I mean, this is really difficult to preach on because there's been a telling shift in the church since the time of this letter. There's been a dramatic shift within the church. I'm not talking the world. I'm talking the church. Back in the day, when John first received this vision, martyrdom was the epitome. Martyrdom was the model for truly living for Christ. And be clear, martyrdom, listen carefully, martyrdom in the sense of the willingness to die, not for what you believe. Martyrdom, not in the sense of being willing to die for what you believe but being willing to die for the faith, for what Christ believed, for the sake of how Jesus lived. This was considered the most authentic witness of belonging to Jesus. Not wanting to die, not looking to die, but being willing to follow Christ unto death if necessary. Believing, trusting that if God raised Jesus from the dead, then we who are in Christ will also be raised from death. Our models for living the good life these days are a lot different. Our tendency, and I'm not talking the world, I'm talking the church. Our tendency in the church is to worship success rather than faithfulness. You shop for a church, what are you shopping for? Success. Bigger is better. The more, the merrier. Our tendency is to worship success rather than faithfulness. And when our idols, the kind of idols who reflect and represent where we want to be, the kind of life we want to achieve, when our idols fall from grace or just get old, as they reveal their vulnerability and their mortality, we simply exchange them for new ones rather than confront the deeper spiritual forces behind them. We have so glorified the values of safety, comfort, and convenience that to be deprived of any of them, we now regard as sacrifice. And in this way, we have belittled the meaning of the word sacrifice. We have belittled the meaning of the word sacrifice, equating it to giving up something we value rather than being living for what Christ values. And that's why, as a result, any talk of sacrifice these days, any talk of sacrifice these days inevitably becomes reframed, have you noticed, as a defense of our rights. Say sacrifice, and people will start telling you about their rights. Our right to be safe. Our right not to be uncomfortable. Our right not to be inconvenienced. 
Whereas the Christians in Smyrna received this letter as an encouragement to press on. We cannot help but hear Jesus' words in this letter in the form of a question. What are we willing to suffer and die for? What are we willing to suffer and die for? It's hard to answer that question. It's hard to answer that question when we try to avoid suffering at all costs. It's hard to answer that question when we endlessly complain when we can't avoid pain and discomfort. And it's easy to ignore that question altogether when we buy into would-be versions of the gospel that claim following Jesus is a road not marked by suffering or sacrifice, but it's a road marked by wealth and prosperity. You name it, you can claim it. You ain't receiving it, you ain't believing it. We promote slogans, right? We have slogans. No risk, no reward. The greater the struggle, the greater the outcome. And yet we play it safe. We play it safe. We make following Jesus safe. We make following Jesus comfortable. We make following Jesus convenient. We invert the greatness of following Jesus from what he seeks to do in and through us to what Jesus can and should do for me. But the question still remains, does not go away. What are we willing to suffer and die for? What are we willing to suffer and die for? Because the answer to that question reveals who or what we are living for. And if we're honest, and I'm preaching a hard word, not just to you, to all of us today. If we're honest, most of us are living to ensure our safety, to protect our interests, to stay alive as long as we can. If we're truthful, most of us would rather negotiate and compromise in order to not lose what we have rather than to sacrifice any of it, all of it, for the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. And there's just no way around it. Until we're ready to die for Christ, we can't truly live for Christ. Until we're ready to die for Christ, we can't truly live for Christ. And don't misunderstand that statement. Our willingness to die for Christ is not about developing a martyr complex. It's not about bearing our self-imposed cross for all the world to see. Our willingness to die for Christ, to give our lives for Jesus, is also not about courting opposition and always looking for a fight, all for the sake of trying to protect and defend God. God doesn't need your help. God does just fine on his own. You don't need to protect or defend God. That's not suffering for Jesus. That's just being a pain. Our willingness to die for Christ is, through our, is reflected through our commitment to live like Jesus. Our willingness to die for Christ is reflected through our willingness to die to ourselves. To die to conforming to a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. If this world is not the way it's supposed to be, then why are we continuing to live the way this world tells us to? Our willingness to die for Christ is evidenced by our rejection of the possibility of self-salvation. You cannot save yourself. 
You cannot. We cannot save ourselves. Our willingness to die for Christ is to call that out. And our willingness to die for Christ is witnessing to the reality of our shared brokenness as human beings. Our problem in in being unable to solve ourselves is not because of them. It's because of all of us. And our willingness to die for Christ is not to take the easy road to find a scapegoat. It's not to take the easy road to point at an enemy, someone to blame, but instead to say, they are me and I am them and we are in the all in the same boat because we cannot save ourselves because we are broken people. But that is not going to fill pews. That is not going to fill rallies. That is not going to get you elected. Our willingness to die for Christ is seen in our pursuit of living out of contentment and generosity. Contentment and generosity rather than continuing to indulge in consumerism and our addiction to pleasure. When is enough enough? How much more do you need? Do you even look and stop and think about what you spend your money on, where you spend your time? How much of your life is devoted to pleasure? How much of that pleasure do you believe you deserve? And how much of your life is devoted to the reality of giving away what you have, what you have been given, what you have been blessed with? How much of your life is is realizing the time, the health, the opportunity you have is not just for your own self-indulgence, but has been given to you to be a steward of someone else who's hurting? That'll cost you. You'll suffer. Our willingness to die for Christ is manifest in practicing honesty in our business rather than rewriting the rules because it's business. Our willingness to die for Christ is extending charity towards our neighbor rather than hiding behind laws. Our willingness to die for Christ is extending forgiveness and promoting peace with our enemies rather than calling for their execution, calling for their annihilation, calling for their absolute destruction. Beloved, when we're willing to live like that, to follow Jesus, not just in what we say, but in what we practically do, when we're willing to say we can't save ourselves, when we're willing to say the problem's not them, it's us, when we're willing to say, you know what, I'm going to stop buying and I'm going to start giving, when we're willing to say I'm going to start pampering myself, and I'm going to start sacrificing for the sake of others. We start saying, you know what? I'm not going to cut corners just because the law says I can. I'm going to be honest in my business transactions. I'm I'm not going to be fall behind rules that say I don't have to do things for my neighbor. I'm going to cross lines when we're willing to say, you know what? I'm sorry. I am not going to extend hate. I'm going to say I forgive, even though they're not asking for forgiveness. I'm not going to be committed to violence. I'm going to be committed to peace, even when they're right in my face and they're going to kill me. When you live like that, when we live like Jesus, we will suffer. That will cause suffering. We will feel the pressure of the forces all around us that do not want to change. We will experience the poverty that comes when we refuse to play by the rules of the game. When we say, sorry, I'm not playing by those rules anymore, we will suffer. We will bear the slander, maybe even the persecution of those who once called us friend, neighbor, maybe even family, of those who will accuse us of being weak and naive. Peace, forgiveness, seriously, honesty, everybody does it. We'll be labeled unpatriotic 
Don't you love this country? Aren't you proud to be an American? We will be labeled as troublemakers. And possibly someday, we may even be sentenced to death. And when and if it comes to that, and again, we all have to just step back and say, I'm sorry, and I'm going to offend some people right now, but what we've been through in the last two years, I'm sorry, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. Please stop telling me in the midst of the global pandemic and all the stuff that we suffered in the West as the church. We couldn't worship in our buildings. We had to wear masks. We had to socially distance. We don't know what suffering and sacrifice is. Talk to our brothers and sisters around the world. Talk to a church in Smyrna and dare you, I dare you to say out loud the fact that you couldn't meet in your building, the fact that you had to wear a mask or had to socially distance, the fact that there's a vaccine that you may or may not take, that that is what you equate with sacrifice and suffering. I don't think you could actually say it in front of the Christians in Smyrna. I don't think we could say it to our brothers and sisters in the world. Because when we truly suffer for Jesus, when and if it comes to that, that's going to be the time when we got to remember who we follow. More than a building. We've got to remember the Jesus who was the first and the last. We have to remember the Jesus who died and came to life again. We have to look to the Jesus who promises us life, life beyond death, and everlasting victory that no one can ever take away from us. Take away our building. Take away our right to pray. Take away our right to gather. Take away our, our tax-exempt status. Take it all away. And nothing will take away from us that redemption, that restoration, that resurrection of which we can be sure of. Because in the spirit of the overarching book of Revelation, not just this letter, the mounting pressure we face, all the discomfort and pain we endure for living for Jesus, for embodying the character of Christ, it's not the force of death suffocating us. These are the pangs of new birth, the labor pains of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, of the everlasting life that will inevitably burst forth for all who are in Christ. And just as with any birth, with any new birth, rather than give up, rather than become overwhelmed by the pressure, the struggle, the pain of delivery, we've got to keep breathing according to the Spirit. We've got to persist in pushing forward by the strength of God's word. We need to continue to have Jesus as our focal point. For no matter what happens, no matter what stands against us, no matter how we may suffer, Christ alone can and will lead us to the other side, into a life, a world, without suffering, mourning, crying or pain, a world without death itself. Amen. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.